Please turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. We are going to continue on here. Chapter 5. And we will do so. We'll read through these fruits one more time. Verse 22 of chapter 5. Paul writing, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so, Father, we are thankful to have Your Word. Thankful to have such a worthy Savior. And Lord, we're thankful to be able to gather and we pray You'd meet with us by Your Spirit. We pray, Lord, as, as we just read from Your Word, that You'd help us now in taking Your Word to continue on in the things that we've learned. And Lord, we firmly believe that we would be edified by them and helped by them to continue continuing on. And Father, we pray You'd meet with us now by Your Spirit. And I ask it for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. I was uh, I was thinking throughout the week, um, kind of like uh, as we were thinking about our time through Galatians, kind of like a, maybe a teacher taking his students on a, a nature hike and going through the woods, and we're going through this this forest, if you will, called Galatians. We've been going through this forest for about two and a half years, and I just had us stop and stare and take in this tree in the forest, or a group of trees, if you will, called the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, as we've seen, is the work of God, or the work of the Spirit within God's people, producing God's likeness in them. Brethren, God is making you like Himself. That's incredible. But now it's time for us to gather up our things and keep on trekking here as there's more of this forest to discover before we reach the end of it, which we are quickly approaching. Today my hope is to, is to conclude chapter 5 as we look at these final verses together. And as we do, we certainly don't want to gloss over this last phrase of verse 23, "...against such things there is no law." Paul here is really reiterating what he's already stated in verse 18. If you're led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. And being led by the Spirit produces this fruit that we just spent nine weeks talking about in verses 22 and 23. And what Paul is getting at is not only are we not under the law, but we're, there's no law acting against the production of this fruit. Nor is there any law that enables the production of this fruit. Christian fruitfulness doesn't come by way of law-keeping. 
It comes by way of a spirit abiding. And if you're spirit abiding, you're not under the law. Paul uses different language, but really driving at the same reality in 1 Timothy 1.9 where he says, the law is not laid down for the just. That's you and I. The law is not laid down for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. You see, the law was given, one, to make Israel distinct from all the other nations on the earth, but it was also given to identify sin and exemplify the reality that the human heart is contrary to God. It is corrupt and against God. Even when God is for you, which He very much was in the Old Covenant. He was for Israel. But the law of Moses, what it did is it put on clear display the sad condition of humanity. For all of us to see, the the law exposed the extent of human fallenness and our hostility against our Creator. Now, you know, someone was offended a few months back when I, when I made the statement that aside from one command, a dead body could uphold the Ten Commandments. Now, I, I didn't make that comment in any disrespect for God's law. I mean, trust me, I, I fear God. Um, if you heard it that way, you, you clearly missed the point. The point is, the, lar- the law was largely a construct of prohibitions. Don't do this. Don't do it, yes, for the sake of the Lord, and don't do it for the sake of your neighbor. For the most part, moral people, moral lost people could uphold it. Now, now obviously they can't or couldn't do so to the fullest extent, but, but don't lose me here. Torah primarily set boundaries. It did not provide or enable righteousness in any way. Paul argues that back in chapter 3. We looked at that. The law said, do not steal. That boundary was set in place so people would not do their neighbor wrong. They wouldn't harm their neighbor. But brethren, if we simply live our lives by don't steal, and that's all we do is make sure we don't cross the line of prohibition, That indicates nothing about our heart before God. It doesn't. Now, breaking it certainly does. But keeping it, not necessarily so. Lost people cannot steal from their neighbor. I mean, we've been where we're living now for 15 years. I I don't think any of my neighbors, maybe, I don't know. If they did, I don't know what it was. I don't think any of my neighbors have stolen anything from me. But that doesn't indicate that they love me, right? In fact, they seem to demonstrate they don't, but <clears throat> not doing something doesn't indicate that I love my neighbor. And that's the big difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant supplies nothing that enables us to love our neighbor. The new covenant does that very thing. That very thing. And that's what Paul's getting at. Under the old covenant, law prohibitions were in place to counter sinful passions, sinful, wicked passions. It was necessary to enforce prohibitions and to condemn sinful expressions of the flesh. 
that would otherwise just reign free if unchecked. Carry out its own will. But you see, in the New Covenant, the Spirit has replaced the law. Enabling those in the covenant to actually do what is pleasing to God. With a heart that's no longer contrary and hostile, but a new heart that that loves and embraces God's will. The Spirit abiding within not only convicts of sin, but also enables and empowers those united in Christ to walk in righteousness and truth and to bear these fruits we've looked at in verses 22 and 23. Against such thing, there is no law. And I really, you know, we really don't need to make this too overly complicated. What, what's, what is the law against? Anyone? Evil. Sin. Yes. The law is against the works of the flesh. It condemns the works of the flesh. And those who are under the law, those same people are under sin. Paul makes that connection throughout this letter and other places. What does the law condemn in judgment? Well, not, not, just, the things that, not just the things that people do, but actually the people that do those things, right? Those things listed there in verses 19 through 21. All of these these community-destroying sins, law pronounces guilty, condemned. But, But what can the law do in turning one from these selfish sins of just idolatry and strife and turning one to the unifying grace of pure devotion and peace? I mean, is there a law that can produce that? No, not at all. There's no law that can produce love. There's no law that can produce joy. There's there's not a law that produces patience. And so on. The law has no power to internally transform people. All of the the Spirit's fruit is is a fruit of life-giving transformation. Life-giving transformation that, that flesh nor the law can produce. Against such, there is no law. And perhaps you say, well, yeah, brother, we, I get it. We've been hearing that for two and a half years now. And, but, but I would ask, have you? Have you really heard it? Have you heard it and understood it? Or have I failed in making this clear, which might be the humble reality? I do believe the majority you have and heard and understood, but there's a minority. How big that number is, I don't know. Not sure, but some who have failed to take this objective reality that I'm not under the law of Moses and actually apply it to life and living. When I see that manifest itself, it tells me I've either failed as a teacher or for some other reason there are folks who are failing to connect the dots in understanding what Jesus has actually accomplished and fulfilled in His atoning work. This is absolutely important, brethren, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we say we believe. We actually end up living our lives 
what we believe. And if you really believe as a Christian, you're not under the law, which you should because that's what scripture, exactly what Scripture tells us. You're, you're not going to be giving place to people who come into the church and start imposing mosaic standards upon you, at least their understanding of mosaic standards, but imposing the law, the, the very thing we've, we've been talking about for two and a half years, the, the very same problem that was going on here in Galatia. Imposing that upon the church, which was never intended for the church. See, brethren, by grace, we have been placed in this wonderful sphere where the law has no jurisdiction. This is what Paul means when he says, we're not under law, we're under this thing called grace, this marvelous sphere of grace, a sphere that actually empowers one to live in righteousness and to live a life like the Lord Jesus Himself. Where where, where the Spirit reigns, brethren, there's life. And where there's real life, there's no need for the law. And Paul explains why life in the Spirit is sufficient in the very next verse. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why why are Christians not under the law? Because the flesh, whose works the law prohibits, have been crucified with Christ. Jesus came, He was born under the law to redeem us who were under the law. Both past tense there were under the law. Jesus died under the law. And when Jesus died under the law, we died with Him. We died with Christ. The passions and desires that rose up against the law have been crucified, making born-again believers dead to the law. Which really takes us back to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, right? Chapter 2, verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. You see, this release from law is, gives place to life. It, it doesn't give place to debauchery and sin. That's a completely corrupt understanding of what it means to not be under law. Not biblical at all. In fact, just the opposite. It provides us a freedom to to actually serve God and pursue righteousness. Something I could not do when I was enslaved in sin, no matter how hard I tried, could not do it. Because I was bound in custody by the law. Bound in my sin. But you see, when Christ comes and sets us free, we're released from all that. And empowered to live for Him. This is the beauty of the Gospel. Paul says as much in Romans 7. Listen to, what, listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, so when you're lost and bound to your flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, that's what the law does, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, it's a huge conjunction here, quite a contrast, but now, now that you're saved, We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. I'm not sure how that can be any clearer than that right there. 
We serve, brethren, we serve in a new way. We just heard about new means new, right? (laughs) We heard that. It really does mean new. It's a new way. It's not a revised way of the old. It's a new way. Paul practically is saying the same thing here in chapter 2, verse 19, just in briefer fashion. And then he says those glorious words in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I, not, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See, when God saves, there's a, there's a real death that occurs. A real crucifixion. And, and real life that's actually generated inside an individual. There's a real now and then that takes place. The old, it, 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 it passes away. It's, it's dead. It's gone. And this, this new creation takes its place. And I would ask you, do you know this? Do, do you know this crucifixion personally? Have you experienced a personal crucifixion? I'm talking about your, your, your crucifixion, not Jesus's. See, there's lots of folks trying to be Christians. Trying to live the Christian life. The problem is they've never died. There has to be a death before there's a resurrection. In order for you to be born again, there's got to be a death. This is what's true of those who belong to Christ Jesus. The Bible says here in verse 24 that they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It is important that we believe that and properly understand that Christians are are not, not those who are still chained and enslaved to their sins. The sins listed there in 19 and 20 through 21. Are they? Have I missed it? No. This, brethren, this list describes those who who have no part with the Spirit. But sadly, I'm afraid that some of you believe quite the contrary. And if you do, I submit to you that you're mistaken and or deceived. You're openly rejecting God's Word. Listen, we, we need to be very careful about the kind of counsel that we're giving people. Eternal souls. Souls are going to step out into eternity. And listen, you don't want souls stepping out into eternity on the strength of your unbiblical counsel. Yes, they're going to bear their own responsibility. You don't want any part of that. You don't want any part of... We just read it, right? Deceiving and being deceived. We don't want any part of that at all. It doesn't matter how nice a person is or how religiously earnest they might seem to be. It doesn't matter how close a friend they are, how much you want to think the best of them. You don't want to be assuring people who are living in sin that they're Christians when indeed they are not. That's destructive. We, we, certainly don't, brother, we certainly don't want to be those saying the exact opposite of what the Bible plainly tells us here. 
assuring immoral people that they're going to inherit the kingdom of God when the Bible right here tells us the exact opposite. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 21. That's, that is no different than what the devil did 6,000 years ago. No different at all. God actually said, Adam, Eve, you see that tree? You, you got full reign. Do whatever you want. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat the fruit from that tree. You do it, and you're going to die. Satan comes along and says, oh, God didn't say that. I mean, come on. Well, okay, maybe he said it, but that's, that's not what he means. Where's Eve today? Not alive. No, because she bought into a twisted idea of God's Word. When the Lord said very straightforward, it was very straightforward, very plain about what He said. And consequently, her deception brought death into this world. Well, certainly Adam had his part too, didn't he? Now we're going to talk next week, Lord willing, about how to restore people who get entangled in sin. But there's a big difference between that and assuming people are Christians and encouraging people that are they're Christians because they talk about it. And yet their life predominantly demonstrates verses 19 through 21. Brethren, that describes someone who's never died with Christ. Those, those verses depict someone whose flesh is very much alive. And I, I implore you in the name of Jesus Christ, don't promote a Christianity that contradicts Scripture. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're doing no one favors, including yourself. Don't be assuring people they're Christians when everything about their life suggests they're not. We want to be faithful, brethren. You might deem that a loving thing to do, but I assure you, that's, that's no love for their soul at all. Brethren, we, we don't, listen, we don't need to play the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very capable of bearing witness to the reality of His life that He deposits in those that are His. Amen. He is. Paul's whole point in these lists right here is to make very clear what hell produces and what the spirit, what spirit wrought grace produces. So we don't we don't want to be deceived. I mean, if your life is one marked by living in sin, I mean, you might hold a profession of faith, but please listen. Heaven doesn't know you. Doesn't. And you might say, I'm proclaiming a work salvation, but that, that's, a, that's precisely the words you'll hear from Jesus Himself. Depart from Me, you worker of iniquity. You, you don't want to hear those words. Just like James was saying earlier, you don't want to hear that li- the list of those, those words. You don't want to hear Jesus say that to you. You want to, you want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's amazing that people won't try to would try to hold on to a Jesus that allows that kind of life. I mean, can you really come in here and sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood and then go out and do the things you do? It's unconscionable. 
And here's the thing. Jesus, Jesus took things much deeper than, than the outward expression of sin. That's kind of what you have here. All these sins listed in 19 through 21. Let me just flip this a little bit. I mean, all these things are like externally evident, right? Jesus steps on the scene in Sermon on the Mount. And he says, oh, oh no, this, this thing goes much deeper. Much deeper than what they were accustomed to. Jesus addresses the hypocrisy of, of simple external law-keeping that, that doesn't flow from a life of love. He says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're not making it. You're not making it into my kingdom. He wasn't talking about His righteousness there. He actually says, your righteousness... Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's, this is what Jesus taught. And brethren, He puts it on full display for us with the rich, rich young ruler. You recall that encounter, right? This man comes up to Jesus. He says, Teacher, what good thing, what, what good deed must I do to, to gain eternal life? And Jesus responds saying, why, why are you asking me about what's good? You want to enter into life? Keep the commandments. How's that for gospel evangelism? Should we do that next, next fall, Adrian? <laughs> Why don't you write up a track? <laughs> Keep the commandments. Gain eternal life. What's Jesus doing? He's setting, him up. He's setting this guy up to expose what he was lacking. And with some... With some apparent level of confidence, the guy says, which ones? <laughs> and Jesus says, don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't bear false witness. Honor your parents. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus doesn't correct him. I mean, perhaps externally, he had, he had lived a fairly upright life. So Jesus goes right after the issue, right after his idle money. Okay, if you're serious, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. See, see, the great problem with the rich young ruler is this. He never stole a thing from his neighbors. But you see, the problem is he never loved them. That's the problem. See, Jesus throughout His ministry was essentially saying as He taught, you're measuring yourself at the wrong place. You measure goodness from without. I measure goodness from within. Things that are actually not measurable by the law. Things like love, joy, patience, goodness, faithfulness. The problem with the rich young ruler was by all standards of law keeping, this guy was recognized as a good man. However, Jesus pointed out the fact he wasn't a good man at all. He lacked the fruit of goodness. He asked the Lord about good assuming he knew what good was. He hoarded all his stuff for himself. He failed to exhibit love to his neighbor by giving them out of his abundance. So Jesus exposes the greed and idolatry of his heart. He was a very deceived religious man. 
And sadly, contrast that with people today. We, we have people today who claim themselves to be followers of Christ, and yet their righteousness doesn't even exceed that of the rich young ruler. He at least had some measure of external righteousness, you see. He was a virtuous man in terms of, of staying within the boundaries. I, I've kept these from my youth. I've, I've stayed within the boundaries, Lord, of my youth. What now? Don't steal. I, I haven't done it. Haven't harmed my neighbor. But that wasn't enough, you see. Brother, I don't, I don't want people to be deceived. I, I don't. I... That's the most devastating thing that can happen to a human being in this life. Not truly understanding what the Gospel frees us from, it can lead to these two extreme forms of bondage. One, living under the bondage of law and legalism. Mere, mere external religion, just like the, the, the rich young ruler. Or secondly, the opposite direction could lead to a life of licentiousness, enslaved to sin and darkness, claiming freedom but bound by sin. So coming full circle here, the measure of one's Christianity is not the law. It's life. It's real life imparted by the Spirit of God. Do you possess this? Do you have this spiritual life within you? It's life from above. Are you born again? Not do you believe, the devils believe. Are you born again, born of God? Not have you stopped this sin or that sin or you know you perform this standard or do you have this gift of life flowing from a new heart? One that's joined with synced in sync with the Spirit. Which is exactly what Paul tells us next in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, if you have a 2011 edition or revision of the ESV, your your verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's good. In fact, that's much better. That was a great revision by the ESV translators. Walk is not the best translation of the, of the word here. Um, and both the KJV and the NASB use it. I'm sorry, but it's, it's, it's a completely different word than the one used in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Thankfully, the ESV folks, somebody must have complained or discovered it after the fact, and they, and they changed actually changed it. So there you have it. Not all revisions are bad, um, bad ones. But in fact, the, the legacy team they did change the NASB rendition of this to say "walk in step with the Spirit," which is which is also good. But "keep in step with the Spirit" is a good translation here. And the reason it is is because the Greek word "stoicheo" actually means to proceed in a row. or to march in rank, to walk in orderly fashion. It would be like the marching of of military soldiers. Most of you are familiar with the military cadence, left, 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 right, left, right? Right? (laughs) 
The, the reason behind that is, is so every soldier is simultaneously doing the exact same thing. They're, they're uniformly marching together, synchronized in their movement, in step with one another. And when one of them gets out of step, that's the one you notice. Notice the if that begins this verse. If we live by the Spirit. This is a conditional statement. If we live by the Spirit, that is, if we have the Spirit's life in us, which, which you have if you're born again, if that's true, then live out your life in step with the Spirit. In sync with the Spirit. The Spirit says go left, you go left. The Spirit says go right, you go right. The Spirit says jump, you jump. The Spirit... In Brethren, guess what? In the New Covenant, with the Spirit, He enables you to do just that. Notice back in verse 24, the, the have crucified. It's past tense. Yes, certainly covering been crucified with Jesus. That would be also included here. All the sins, all the sins of our past though, as, as a Christian. Not just the crucifixion at the, at the cross. The flesh being put to death there, but every sin you've committed as a Christian. All those who belong to Christ have actually crucified and put to death by the Spirit's power. Every one of those sins was by the Spirit's power because the Spirit dwells in you. Now, we're not talking about sinless perfection here, obviously. That's made clear, actually, in, in the beginning of chapter 6. We're, we're going to talk about that. But we're, we're talking here is about your basic manner of life. Is, is, are you living a life reliant upon and compliant with the Spirit of God? And of course, nobody's doing that perfectly. I mean, there is a slow progression towards perfection in your life. And, and I would say it's probably very difficult for you to even observe on a daily basis. But the truth is, you're not the same person you were when God saved you. You ought not be, unless He saved you last week. These fruits have been a growing reality in your life. Yeah, maybe painfully slow, but, but they're, they're a growing reality. They should be. Some mostly advancing quicker than others. Uh, but there is advancement being made nonetheless. He, sh- soldiers don't show up to boot camp and all of a sudden they're all synchronized and in, 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 in step with one another, right? It, it requires training. It requires practice. It requires time so that when they graduate at boot camp all the parents are impressed with it it wasn't so impressive on day one there's a lot of drill sergeants yelling in their ears doing push-ups and and all that they do and some of you know what that's all about i was thinking of another illustration like gardening i mean douglas knows all about that lydia's been she's got her garden going in the back porch and her green thumb wasn't altogether impressive when she started out. But she's, she's getting better slowly over time. She's, she's learned more about planting and plants and it requires time. It requires learning from trial and error. It's, you know, some things get perfected quicker than others. Other things require more experimentation, more experience, more exposure, more trials, a larger sample size. Brethren, we grow in our sanctification as we keep in step with the it's a gradual process. I, I like how Gordon Fee puts it. 
when a sinner gets saved, a divine infection occurs, not divine perfection. Now, yes, the, the infection is perfection, but the object you is not fully perfected until this infection fully runs its course, which happens as you keep in step with the Spirit. It's kind, it's kind of like leaven, right? Leaven and bread. It's a small little thing. It's relatively small, but it grows, and eventually it fully infects the whole lump of dough. And the whole lump, of course, would be the course of your life. And so the big overarching question here regarding our Christianity is, am I growing as a Christian? Is the Spirit of God growing me as I seek to walk by Him, live by Him, stay in step with Him? Am I content where I'm at in my Christianity? You know, there, there, is, there is an appropriate holy discontentment. Yes, there's a, there's, there's a bad discontentment. There's a sinful discontentment. But there's a, there is a holy discontent. And it's in, I want more. I want more of Christ. I want, I want to change. I want more love. More love to Thee, Lord. I want more joy. I want more peace. I want more kindness. I want more patience. I want more gentleness. I want more self-control. And hopefully there's even been growth since we've talked about these matters. But are, are you content without seeing such progress in your life? If you are, that's very concerning. Because what happens is, is once this holy infection takes place, Holy Spirit's grace takes place in our heart. It's like we read in Titus 2 last week. It, it trains us. It, it teaches us. It teaches us something. It draws us into something. A desire, a hunger uh, to be more like verses 22 and 23. A growing disgust for the lingering reality, realities found in verses 19 through 21 that continue to manifest themselves and require the death blow of grace in our lives. A growing desire for this holy infection to indeed make me perfect. That's the Christian's disposition. That's their earnest desire. And their reliance is not on themselves, but on the Spirit to do this. Remember that Paul is answering in chapter 5 the question posed in chapter 3, having begun by the Spirit, are now being perfected by the flesh, which he equates in there as the law. Nope. Not going to happen. Never. This thing hangs on the Spirit from beginning to end. And verse 22 through 25 are describing that reality to us and how that is so. The Christian life is a life that's to be lived out in step with the Spirit of God. Does that describe you? You even know what that means at all? Ever experienced that? You know one of the ways you can know? The manifestation of these fruits in your life as a natural response to gospel grace. Instead of a life that's largely being lived out trying not to do what's forbidden. There's a huge difference there. I hope you understand that. you got people trying to be Christians just trying not to do the things forbidden and trying to muster up some kind of ability to do the things that Christians are supposed to do. But a real Christian 
is one who, who responds by grace to the work of the Spirit in their life, pursuing righteousness and thirsting after it and despising the, the, the remnants of their corruption that remain. Huge difference. And the difference is life. When the Spirit's life is real and vibrant and you're in step with the Spirit, you, you don't need a law telling you don't do this. You just don't. Because your heart is aligned with righteousness. I get very concerned when I see people who profess faith when it seems their whole idea of Christianity is trying to be Christian. Trying to produce Christian fruit when there's no life within to produce it. See, Christian fruit is born in the soil of relationship with God. It's His fruit. Just like you can see the parental features of children, right? There's a little melody sitting back there in Caleb's lap. You know, and, you know as the family we're talking about, I can see this in uh, faith in her. Right? I can see Caleb. Uh, she's got Caleb's head. Yep, he, he, Caleb had a big head when he was little. And she came out having, there, last time we were at the doctor, it was like one percentile of the size of her head. It's like, so you see these features, right? Like Harlow, we got Harlow. She's like, oh, he looks like, she looks like Hudson. And you got all these features that parents look at their children. And it's common, Right? The child came from them. They're going to carry those, those traits and those features. It's going to be a combination of both. The same is true with God's people. You are what you are if you're a Christian because God has invested. He's, he's infected you, right? You have this holy DNA in you, if you will. It doesn't mean doesn't mean that you don't play any part in your sanctification. It's like it's all God. I'm just some body and God just does everything. Certainly, certainly I have a part in my own sanctification. I, I have to appropriate what's mine in Jesus Christ. And what's mine is the Spirit willing and able to aid me. Keeping in step with the Spirit is an imperative here. It is. It's a command. If you live by the Spirit, then you must do this. You must keep in step with the Spirit. Without that, you will not become what you are. As we've been talking. Actually, you will become what you are. You, you just It'll be manifest that you're not Christ's. Keeping in step with the Spirit is, is, is not keeping some, some set of external rules to govern my behavior like the rich young ruler in which I can then turn around and feel good about myself. But all along, I'm, I'm void of the most important thing. Life within. Void of the divine deposit of goodness. Keeping in step with the Spirit is keeping myself dependent upon Him. Yielding to Him. Appealing to Him for grace, for guidance, for power in my life. Well, now, now, following this statement, you would expect Paul to give us an example of what keeping in the Spirit is, right? Instead, he does the opposite. Look at verse 26. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul, Paul cites an example of what spirit life does, does not look like. 
mean, this, this does sound similar to the warning he issues in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Clearly, Paul is going after something that was presently manifesting itself in Galatia. These attitudes, these expressions that are contrary to the Spirit, being conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, conceit. The King James says vainglory. That's a good translation because the word there is literally made up of two words. Empty glory. I don't know why they just don't translate it that way. Vainglory. What does that mean? It means to be arrogant and proud when you have no warrant to be so. It's one of those most basic realities taught in Scripture as as we relate to God. God does what? He resists the proud. But He gives, He gives, He gives grace to those who humble themselves before Him. It's impossible to, to keep in step or even to be in step with the Spirit if we're walking in pride. Can't happen. Impossible. Which makes sense, right? Because dependence on the Spirit requires humility. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying if you seek to live out your life on the basis of law-keeping or on the basis of things you can do, because let's face it, the ultimate appeal of law, that's the ultimate appeal of law-keeping, right? I can do this. Just like the rich young ruler. I got this. Well, I did all those things. You seek to live your life out that way? Instead of reliance upon and keeping in step with the Spirit, you will, you will, you will accomplish not spiritual growth and maturity and a life that's honoring to Christ. You, you, what you will accomplish is empty glory. Just like the rich young ruler. Look what I did. Look what I, I'm doing. I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm keeping the standard. What about you? You measuring up? Vainglory, conceit. And, and it manifests itself in provoking others and envying others. That's getting out of step with the Spirit. That's being a soldier who breaks rank, right? That's, that's out of line. It doesn't belong. See the, see the importance of getting this word translated right is if, if we just leave it walk, it, it loses the community aspect of this command. The, the analogy Paul is, is, is making is, is one where everyone is in line. The community is in line. They're in step with one another as they are in step with the Spirit. It's this, it's this picture of a unified army working together. Being in step with the Spirit. It, it shows us it shows us where we ought to be in relationship to other Christians, to one another. This is not, he's writing this to a church, right? This letter. And all the one another's should likewise be in step with the Spirit. And if they are, maybe just like the soldiers, in synchronization, in step with one another. We have brothers and sisters marching right beside us, left, right, left stride for stride. As long as we keep in cadence with the Spirit, As long as we do, there won't be any prideful pushing and shoving 
going on, jockeying for position amongst the ranks, conceit producing division, but rather unified formation. When someone falls, when someone falls down or lags behind or gets injured or starts to fatigue or starts thinking about going AWOL, the unified battalion rallies around them and gets them right back in cadence with the rest of the army. Which really brings us into chapter 6. In fact, some folks believe the chapter break should be between verse 25 and 26 instead of where it's at. Because it, it does relate to the next verse. And so we're going to stop advancing here. And I want to close just by briefly reaching back into verse four, or 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I love that phrase. Belong to Christ Jesus. What a thing to be said of anyone. What a privilege. What an honor of all things to be said as a sinner that I belong to Jesus Christ. (laughs) What a Savior. What a friend. Christian, your flesh was crucified with this wonderful Savior so that His beauty might be put on display in your life. It's incredible that God would do such a thing in the likes of us. So that the fragrance of these these fruits here in verses 22 and 23, they might be made possible. They might be apparent for all to see and behold and, and recognize, oh, you belong to Jesus. Oh, that... It might be through persecution, but there's an identification. This one belongs to Jesus. No question about that. That's the identifying mark of belonging to Jesus, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Flesh slayer. A Christian is one who's slain the flesh. Oh, Christian, it's it's not a matter of whether you have sins. But what do you do with those sins? That's the issue. That's what matters. If you're enabled by God to put to death the deeds of the flesh, that's cause for much rejoicing. That doesn't come from you. That comes from the Spirit of God. Fallen humanity cannot do that alone. Can't. But a prior death, a death with Christ, enables you to continue to put to death your remaining corruption. And it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Put to death what remains. I mean, why would I have to put to death that which is crucified? Well, I think this is where crucifixion is very pertinent in a helpful illustration. See, when criminals were nailed to a tree, their death was not immediate. But it was certain. They weren't coming down from that cross. It, but it took time. It took time for them to finally die. Far longer than the crucified one desired it to be. The suffering was immense. Crucifixion was a slow, painful, gradual death. 
And brethren, our remaining corruption is just like that. Putting to death sin is painful. Not for our bodies. Well, maybe in some cases our bodies, but for our souls for sure. It's shamefully difficult to face your sin and painful to strike it down. Discouraging when it rises up again. Another blow, another blow, another blow. The exercise gets weary. It gets weary because it's something we need to stay on top of. Or else the flesh can kind of get the mind that it's thinking it's just going to climb on down from that cross and get off it. But you see, grace supplies a fresh new set of nails <laughs> and makes sure it stays put. Putting passions and desires to death requires the strength and grace of God's Spirit. Absolutely. Human effort alone will not do. That's why mortification of sin is impossible for lost religious people. Absolutely impossible. And it's interesting that there are those who want to justify their profession of faith while still being in bondage to sin. When this verse right here tells us the identifying mark of belonging to Jesus Christ is the crucifixion of passions and desires. According to Paul's theology, our relationship to sin is the tell-all. It tells or reveals who truly is God in your life. Again, same question that took place in the garden. Who is your God? That's what the garden revealed. Who is your God? You see, Christians, true Christians, are not those who, who, who achieve great spiritual accolades by their own power. They're those who have gladly turned over the reins to King Jesus and who have entrusted themselves and submitted themselves to His faithful, wise, loving care. In exchange for their trust, Jesus grants them His Spirit to overcome sin in their life. So who do you belong to? What does your life suggest? Not your mouth, but what does your life suggest you belong to? What does your relationship to sin and Jesus suggest? There's a, as I was meditating on this throughout the week, I, that old hymn came to my mind, uh, Now I Belong to Jesus. How many of you know that hymn? I, I like that, that old hymn. Sid remembers it. It goes like this, Joy floods my soul for Jesus has saved me. Freed me from sin that long had enslaved me. His precious blood, He came to redeem. Now I belong to Him. Now I belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Hallelujah, yes. Father, we thank You it's so. We thank You we have such a precious Savior. Lord, that we do belong, and Lord, that belonging, in that belonging, You have supplied us Your Spirit to not allow the sins of our flesh to come between this wonderful relationship that You've established with us. Lord, we don't want nothing between our soul and our Savior. So we pray and we implore You for this grace to stay in step with the Spirit. Lord, to have that, that intimacy with You and not to let anything in this life interfere with it. Lord, I pray You're protecting grace in our lives. This is as we uttered earlier, Lord. Eight men walked away from the faith in their latter days. 
Oh, Lord, let it not be us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.